we talked briefly about rather superficial things. But the next morning, about this time of the morning, earlier actually, about 7 o'clock, I was setting up. It's warm down there. And um, it was a room, big room, about half the size of this tent. I was getting ready, getting the projector and stuff set up for the first lecture. And he came in. Nobody else was there. He came in early, set his things down on a table over there. And I walked over to speak with him. And uh, he said to me, among other things, he said, my eyes are so poor I can't read even with my glasses. He said, would you get my dose ready for me? He couldn't read the graduations on the syringe. So I got so much of this and so much of that according to his instructions. He gave himself a shot. He was really legally blind. And um, that was Monday morning. So we fed him two me- We fed the people two meals a day and then sent them home in the evening. They couldn't afford to stay in the resort. The people on the islands are not well enough to do that, well off enough. And um, Thursday at noon, the buffet was set up out there under the palm trees and everybody was getting ready to go through line. And I was walking down the line, just visiting with people. And I came to him, Harcourt Blackett, Father Blackett. And I said, how are you doing? He said, oh, listen. And by the way, a week before the seminar, he had nearly died from his diabetes. He was a very sick man. Not not an older man. He was probably 50, perhaps. Uh, That sounds pretty young to me these days. (laughs) I'd like to be 60 again. So, uh, so, uh, how many meals had he had? Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, two, four, six, eight, and Thursday breakfast. He'd had eight or nine meals. And he said to me, this is Thursday. He's, he's just getting ready to go through line. He said, oh, my doctor has taken me off all my medication except one pill a day. And he was taking several insulin shots and a number of oral medications to try to, to try to control his sugar in how many meals nine meals now I reached him about four weeks later we have kept in touch actually before and after that but I reached him about four weeks later one day at the rectory I was in the states again Harcourt how you doing oh listen I just got back from my ophthalmologist he said my eyes are perfect so when we use this term, when Weimar developed this term, reversing diabetes, what we, what we understand is that almost, there are a couple of exceptions, almost all the damage that diabetes does can be reversed for most people. And um, it's a marvelous thing. I, you know, we could just tell you stories forever because we've done so many of these things around the country and around the world and you see people get well. The interesting thing about Harcourt Blackett is he had been a priest on the island of St. Lucia and the conference treasurer was a St. Lucian. And as they got to visiting together, especially after Harcourt was well, he said to the conference treasurer, we should do one of these at St. Lucia. So they contacted us. We 
picked a date, and then Harcourt and the treasurer flew to St. Lucia to get on television and advertise the upcoming program. And um, you wouldn't know this, but St. Lucia, you probably wouldn't know this, historically has been a Catholic island. It's only been about 30 years ago that 92% of the people on the island were Catholic. Today, there are 20 Catholic churches on the island. It's only only 65,000 people for the nation. 20 Catholic churches. There are 48 Adventist churches on that island. 48. And uh, 30, 35 years ago, there were only two schools. There was a Catholic school and an Adventist school. There were no government schools. The government paid the Catholics and the Adventists to run their schools. And this conference treasurer had been a teacher in the school system. And as we drive around the island, we've been there about eight times now. As we drive around the island, he knows almost everybody who's 50 years old or so because they were all students of his back then, see. I mean, even the prime minister, and just goes on and on and on. Anyway, so here's the, uh, here's the conference treasurer and the... Catholic priest on a television program in St. Lucia being interviewed for half an hour about the upcoming reversing diabetes program. And you understand that there's going to be some tension on the island between Catholics and Adventists. And um, so the host of the program says somewhere in the interview, how come in the world Adventists and Catholics are working together? And Harcourt Blackett Father Blackett interrupted. He says, oh, listen, the Adventists saved my life and I am very grateful. (laughs) So, as I said, uh, finally, after all of these visits there, we uh, it's a long story. I won't tell it. um, Ended up holding a reversing diabetes seminar just last February and March in the White House. And it's a very interesting story how all these dignitaries came, including they had the chef for the archbishop. You know, you know what an archbishop is? He runs all the parishes, right? He's in charge. And he's this big. And uh, that was their testimony. And they had his chef come. They also had the chef of the prime minister come to the program. Very, very interesting. Now, yesterday we stopped when I told you that carbohydrate burns clean, and I don't know if I got to the one that says it turns powerful. It burns powerful. And uh, fat and protein burn dirty. That's a, that's a sort of a metaphor term. It m- means there are chemical substances that are not good for us. And just for fun, you probably know that this big red thing right here is a fuel tank. Did you know that? And it's fuel for the three engines at the bottom of the shuttle. Not for the, not for the booster rockets on the side, but the shuttle engines. And of all things that the scientists could dream up for the most powerful source of fuel per pound. By the way, that big red tank is actually two tanks inside. And one of them has oxygen, liquid, and one of them has hydrogen. And when you burn hydrogen and oxygen together, what do you get? Water. Right? And uh, there it is, two H's and one O give you water, which is H2O. Y'all know that. And the only difference between hydrogen and oxygen and burning starch is that there's carbon in addition. 
Starch is made of carbon and hydrogen and oxygen. That's why it's called a carbohydrate. So this stuff is almost the same as burning hydrogen and water, hydrogen and oxygen. And what you get is water and carbon dioxide. And carbon dioxide is very easy for the body to get rid of. It is a toxic, but it's very easy. It just outgasses so quickly. You, you all know this. You breathe it out. So this is a this is a very efficient and unpolluting source of energy for everything that we do for our body's needs. Carbohydrate. If we burn, see, the body would rather not burn fat or protein because of the toxins. And it's just designed to use carbohydrates. So a plant-based diet that's unrefined is almost all carbohydrate. About 75 to 80 percent of the calories, maybe 20 percent, maybe 15 to 20 percent from fat, maybe 5 to 10 percent from protein along in there. I think we I think we got to this picture. Remember, these are the these are the furnaces that burn the sugar. And the idea is now this is what we didn't get to. This is where Aniva said that my time was up. And uh, this sugar molecule I'm pointing at here has to get inside through the cell wall and get in the furnace. It can't just pass through the cell wall. And that that statement could be a college course for about six months. But um, so how does it get in there? Well, we'll come to that in a minute. But it's you know, it, insulin is involved. Insulin produced in the pancreas gets it helps get it inside. And in type two diabetes, this is what's going on. For about 10 years before you're diagnosed with diabetes, and I'm pretending that the pancreas is the secretary that's overloaded. This is an overloaded secretary. The, the pancreas is. And uh, because insulin has a lot of things that are done in the body, uh, she's very busy making insulin, if you all with the, with the little metaphor here. Not only is insulin involved in moving glucose into the blood, from the blood into the cells. And by the way, you get the idea here, don't you? If there's too much sugar in the blood and you manage to move some of that inside some cells, then the blood sugar would be lower. That's the, that's the basic thing going on there. And, but uh, insulin is also involved in moving fat into the cells. It's involved in keeping it from leaking back into the bloodstream, the fat. It's involved in converting excess calories into fat. A lot of ins- lot of work for for insulin, so the pancreas has to do produce a lot of this. Now, let's just consider this graph for a minute. Let's say this is the, this is years and years here, and so any given day the insulin might be up and down a smidgens. But over time, there's an average amount of insulin found in the bloodstream. This would be no insulin, and this would be lots and lots, and some amount, some average amount, and. Here's what happens about 10 years before a person's diagnosed with diabetes. The amount of insulin that the body makes is increasing over time. Now, the physicians have a name, the scientists and the physicians have a name for this that I don't like because it doesn't really describe what's happening. And there's a second reason. It makes people think, oh, I've got that. So what can I do about it? But the, anybody know what the physicians call this phenomenon? It's called insulin resistance. How many have heard the term? Well, half of you at least. That sounds like you got something that you didn't want and that's too bad. 
And it isn't really insulin resistance, as you'll see. It's something else. But it is happening. In fact, if, if it wasn't so expensive, we could screen people years before they're diagnosed. We could screen them by measuring what in their blood? How much insulin is there? And we could say to them, you know, your insulin's higher than it ought to be. And uh, something is going on here. You ought to think about changing something. Anyway, go ahead. Yes, but we don't do that in, in this in as screening. Screening. Now, if you go to the doctor and they do a chemical panel, I don't know that most blood chem panels even include insulin. So um, it's just not done. And the medical community is not into this world. You know, the medical community is not into uh, lifestyle change. They're into... Uh, and it's not their fault. Whose fault is it? Did we? It's my fault because I don't want to change my lifestyle. I like the way I'm living and I like the sugar donuts and the whatever, you know. But, but nevertheless, this is what's going on. And what's happening is, and I'll show you the reason in a minute, the body is producing more insulin in order to control the sugar. We're getting too much sugar in the bloodstream. The body's raising the insulin. Finally, the secretary starts fatiguing. And, she, and the secretary can no longer keep up with this. And the insulin uh, production drops and the blood sugar up until... Well, does this make sense to you? Up until now, if you measured the blood sugar, it would look normal. You all with me on the idea? But after this, because the pancreas is just becoming fatigued, we see the blood sugar increasing and the doctor measures that or another thing I'll tell you about in just a moment and, and says, look, you've got diabetes. But look at how long it's been going on for getting ready for it. Or actually, the problem was, was there even uh, before. Well, so the secretary just collapses, if you wish, or can't do as much. And we call it insulin resistance. What's a pancreas to do? Well, you make the pancreas work harder. You make the secretary work harder, even though she doesn't feel like it. You know how you do that? With a pill. You give the you put a chemical in the body via a pill, oral medication, that makes the pancreas work harder. Now on the surface that doesn't sound like a real good idea, does it? But that's what the there's several classes of oral medication. Uh, the first class that was invented, don't worry about the name, they're called saphonal ureas. That's what they do. They still we still use them. They make the pancreas produce more insulin uh, by chemically, if you wish, you know, uh, stimulating it. So uh, there's the oral medication. And, of course, every medicine, every every medicine, folks, that we take, with some interesting exceptions, uh, is insulin a medicine? Well, you could say it's a medicine, give it by injection or whatever. Uh, the interesting thing about insulin, it's the same stuff that our body makes. So there's no, there's, well, be careful. There's no normal side, no normal type side effects. You, you must know, you must have heard this from people with diabetes, that insulin tends to make people gain weight. And so you understand this, that if, if the body is healthy, it doesn't take much insulin. It's this unhealthy condition that has caused this huge need for insulin. Is this making sense what I'm saying? And so with this extra insulin, either that the body is making or that I give myself as an injection, 
it makes it easier to gain weight because one of the things that insulin does is cause fat to move from the bloodstream into the cells and keep it there from leaking back out. So you gain weight very easily. And if you know anybody that has diabetes and has gotten to taking insulin, you probably are aware of that. It's a real struggle. It's like a catch-22. The extra weight makes it more likely that your body's going to be messed up and have diabetes, but the insulin that you're taking to control the sugar is making you get more weight. So it's, very, it's a very challenging thing. Nevertheless, uh, let's go back to that cell. How are we going to get this sugar inside? There's a door. Now, this is a metaphor. There's a door on the cell through which the sugar has to pass. The problem is the door is locked. So guess who unlocks the door? Insulin comes along, opens the door, helps the sugar get inside. And it's the metaphor. I'll tell you what it is. The door is a receptor. Does that make sense from yesterday? Actually, there's two receptors. And if we had time and some of you were medically inclined and interested, I could show you the details. But for most of us, a door is the issue here. And so what's going on, folks? Our cells are covered with doors. And it doesn't take very many insulin guys under normal, healthy conditions. Any one of these guys can run several doors in his area. Y'all with me on the idea? It doesn't take much insulin for healthy people to control their blood sugar. But what happens when people are especially inactive, not active enough, I don't use the E word. What's the E word? I don't want to use that because it scares people. (laughs) Active. When people aren't active enough, they lose doors. This is a very interesting topic. I'm struggling with the time. I wish I had. I don't know if you're aware of this, but in about the last three or four or five years, science is coming up with something that we never dreamed would be the case. And that is that your lifestyle changes your genetic material. Have you seen that recently? It's all over the place in the scientific literature. The way you live changes your genes. And we, we now know, and we, we suspected this even 10 years ago, that, the, that what, what was going on in this cell that has lost a bunch of its doors is that the DNA is no longer instructing the cell to... And it is no longer producing doors enough to keep this person uh, to control their blood sugar. So guess what you do? Um, I'd love to go some more on that topic. The, one of the reasons it's interesting is because Ellen White taught this, folks, years and years ago. Are you aware of that? She taught that lifestyle. She taught that the way you acted would affect how your child is born with, 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 uh, with inclinations to act in a certain way. You remember that kind of thing? Both. Both. Yeah. And the scientists back then said, crazy. Well, they all know it now. They all know it now. And the reasons for that, I'd love to talk about it, but these are topics that we have to, you know, we can't get into all this stuff. So what the body does when there are fewer doors is it it makes more insulin in an effort to, to keep as many doors active as possible. But if this, if you think about this, once you, get as, you, once you get enough insulin out there to run these doors as rapidly as possible, would more insulin help? It really doesn't. You probably know. We have people come to our clinics or to our classes who have blood sugars of 500. They're taking 
500 units of insulin a day. It's not the answer. You can't control it. It's very, very fascinating how uh, messed up our bodies are when we mess them up. (laughs) So up to 90% of these doors can be missing in a person who is living in an unwise or unhealthy lifestyle. So uh, instead of the, the, this is the same number of guys that was there before. What they what they will what the body does is try to put somebody at every door, so to speak, and uh, maximize the movement of sugar. So are we going to take more pills? Maybe take some insulin. Uh, try to get the pancreas to produce some more, so we can get enough guys running all the doors. But after that, more insulin doesn't do any doesn't help at all. See. You keep adding insulin, you can't control the sugar. So it's difficult to keep the blood sugar under control. It's almost always too high. Another thing that can happen is it can swing dangerously low because of the medication. By the way, we call that hypoglycemia. You all know that. And uh, what is the average physician say to somebody who has hypoglycemia? What's, What's the recommendation for that person to control that? Eat high protein, high fat, which means low carb because carbs are sugar, and eat often. Just the just the just just exactly what the body does not need. Does that help a little bit? Yes, but it's just making the problem worse and other problems. Listen, the number one cause of kidney failure is what? Diabetes. Diabetes. Number two cause of kidney failure you might not know is hypertension. Number three, cause of kidney failure, too much protein in our diets. And everywhere you turn with the kinds of things that people who are don't change their lifestyle and the kinds of things that they adopt or are told to do, almost everywhere you turn, these things are bad for you. And it doesn't really control it. It helps a little, perhaps. Every physician that I work with, there's about 35 of us uh, lifestyle-minded physicians that I work with, uh, treat hypoglycemia the same way. They put the people on a plant-based diet and the hypoglycemia problem is over. Now, there could be something else. There's always a possibility of a tumor or some kind of an issue that might be causing this. But, you know, 98% of the time, it's lifestyle. So type 2 diabetes, uh, diabetics normally have an ongoing degeneration of every tissue in the entire body. Often, the first symptom for diabetes is deteriorating eye Sight issues. Uh, Not always. That person probably had diabetes for 10 years, maybe longer, undiagnosed. Uh, As we were saying yesterday, it's largely asymptomatic. Sometimes people will get symptoms earlier. There is good news. If this person is willing to change their lifestyle, change what they eat and how it's prepared, and both of those things are important, and get adequate activity... In three to six weeks, up to 50% are medication-free with normal blood sugar. Yes? I heard that if you walk one hour, and you must walk an hour at one time, that that is such good activity that it will decrease a lot of the problems. Well, there's no question that activity, as I said yesterday, and dietary issues are are the elephant in the room for treating diabetes. But the idea of doing all this activity at once, which was which was produced about 40 years ago by studies at Harvard University, has been shown to be not correct. And in fact, 
this was the, the, the main place that where these studies are known to have been done is, is Tufts University. What we now know is you can have activity uh, in, in as small a pieces as you want, as long as you get enough of it total. A, and B, you don't have to do it hard. Uh, what we find, I'll come to this in a second, that Weimar, we have to get people walking. It varies, but what we say is four miles a day would be a target that people need to get to. It's hard to get people well if they're not getting that much activity. But walking, we, we use walking because almost everybody can walk. And uh, if they can't walk, we'll help them do some other things perhaps. Uh, but um, it can be any activity and any muscle. One of the reasons we keep going with walking is it, it's the bigger muscles in the body. And if this makes, if I can describe this, it's the, uh, the larger the muscle, the, the less time you have to use it to get the result. That makes sense. You could actually you could actually cure diabetes doing this. Is that muscular work? The problem is there aren't enough hours in the day because those muscles are too tiny. But you use a big muscle and walk four miles. Uh, it's enough. Now it doesn't even um, it doesn't just have to be your exercise time. Everything you do counts. If you wave your arms a lot when you talk, it counts. Do you know that the people who have the least heart disease are conductors? They're waving their arms like crazy and... Let's not get sidetracked here. You get the point. So you can walk a sixteenth of a mile 64 different times during the day. That's all right. And the other thing that Tufts showed was you don't have to get your heart rate up. I, I read a study recently that showed that the, the, in, the increased benefit from... Just, this is for the heart. And for the rest of the body, it probably isn't even an issue. But even for the heart, the increased benefit from doing it aerobically, if you wish to call it that, right, is only 3% greater than just doing it at a normal pace. This was all developed back in the days when, you know, just the studies weren't as done as well as they could have been. And we now know from lots of different places that this stuff we had for all these years was really not correct. I'm not against it, mind you. The reason I like people to know this is most of you don't want to go out and exercise aerobically. Isn't that correct? Well, it's good news uh, if you will just be active. And it doesn't matter if you're walking around the house. All of those steps count. You all with me with the idea? Four miles a day is kind of the target we use at Weimar. Well, and listen, this is the amazing thing. Ninety percent. Almost 90% of the people with neuropathy have complete relief, complete remission of this, this neuropathy pain, etc. It's just incredible. Absolutely incredible. So you have to walk or something like it and use whole plant foods eaten whole. Now, you should walk. You, if you're not active very much right now, you should build up gradually. Every once in a while, I don't have time for these stories. A lady came to our seminar about two months ago up in Washington, morbidly obese, 
And uh, the physician that was with us said to the whole class, I want you to think in your mind to determine what, from what you know about yourself how far you can walk and, and, and that distance it would be just you would be pretty tuckered out or exhausted. And all I want you to do is walk half of that distance to start with. Well, bless this lady's heart. She has a thing and it's, I don't know if you know this, but uh, the physician that was there with me said to me later, he said, Jim, 90% of the morbidly obese females that come into my office have been sexually abused as a child. But And so she has this thing about men. She doesn't like to take directions from men. And so she went out and walked as hard as she could till she was exhausted. And uh, it just messed up her whole ability that week to try to cooperate with the plan. So build up gradually. Build up gradually. And uh, some of you are active enough that if you, were, if you had diabetes, you know, you, maybe you wouldn't have to build up so gradually. Four miles a day. Do it in pieces if you like. Now, here are, this is a cell, uh, and this is a cell, and one of these, don't say this out loud, one of these represents type 2 diabetes, and one of these represents type 1 diabetes. I want to see if the teacher did a half-decent job of making this clear. So I want all of you to look at this next slide. Don't say this out loud, please. One of these cells represents a person with type 1 diabetes, and one of these cells represents a person with type 2 diabetes. So would you all just quickly look at that and determine which is which? How many think you got the answer? Let me see your hands. Woo. Hmm. Let me help you. Let me help you. How many are completely flummoxed? You have no clue whatsoever. How many should have raised their hand and didn't? All right. This person, see where I'm pointing, has lots of doors, no insulin. This person has lots of insulin, very few doors. Would that help you decide which type of, which is type one and which is type two? What type of, what type of diabetic can no longer make insulin? Type one, this, the beta cells were destroyed in the pancreas. Y'all with me? And uh, a person with type 2 diabetes is making way more insulin than they need or than they would normally need, but they don't have enough. So the top one is type and the bottom is type 2. Good. Y'all with me on that. I said in the beginning they're two completely different diseases. You see why? Okay. Now, yes. working with stem cell stuff and pancreas? Yes, that's an interesting topic. Uh, I don't have time to get into it. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Very interesting. It's brand new stuff that's going on. I just heard a lecture just a few weeks ago, and I hadn't even read anything about this yet. It's just coming up on the horizon. So it's hard to say what's going to be happening. Here's what the plan is then. Plant foods, the whole edible portion, no refined foods, eat all you want. You might be surprised at that, folks. I have a lecture called, You Can Lose Weight Without Starving. And if you eat unrefined plant foods, you can fill your tummy. And still lose weight. I could tell you stories after stories of people that we've... My wife and I held the first weight control seminar. It's got to be 35 years ago. We've been doing it ever since in our classes. We have a section at least on weight control. So, uh, here's what the plan is not. No counting calories. No exchanges. No supplements. 
No dieting. Nothing extra to buy. Don't count fiber. Don't count this. Don't count anything, folks. Did Adam and Eve have charts to count how much fiber they were getting? Or vitamins? Or fat or carbon? No, don't do that. What's going on is this, folks. You fill up a plate with plant foods. I, I, I haven't made this real clear, but I think you know this. Plant foods in general are low in fat. You all know that. You may not know that fat has twice, actually, two and a quarter times as many calories as either protein or carbohydrate. So if you have a source of food that's low in fat and you fill your tummy with it, you get fewer calories than if you had a source of food that's high in fat and you fill your tummy with that. Are you all with me on that? So uh, it's just as amazing how, how, this, how God's plan works so well. Now, most of you don't have diabetes, but I hope that this whole discussion has been useful to you. First of all, it's not only the way to get over diabetes, it's the way to avoid diabetes. That's correct. And I hope that you have friends and family members, perhaps, that would benefit if they're not here by your encouraging them to think about doing something better. Now, let me close this portion. We'll see how long Neva lets me go. Uh, Measuring blood sugar. Diabetes was once diagnosed if the fasting blood sugar was 140. This has been about 25 years ago. Scientists and physicians realized that people were sick before this. So they changed the number. The definition of diabetes became, I think I have this, 126 or more. And suddenly there was 8 million more diabetics in the country. Why was that? They just changed the line, see. Now, it wasn't long after that that we realized that people are still quite sick, even long before their blood sugar gets to 125 or greater, 126. And so we now have this new category of pre-diabetes. You all aware of that? If your blood sugar is 110 or higher, they say, well, you have pre-diabetes. They ought to just tell you you have diabetes. But the medical community has a hard time. They're kind of embarrassed that they once said 140 and then they're saying 125 and now they're saying 110. So it's pre-diabetes. Nevertheless, um, here's the issue. And people don't understand this either. It is not so much the momentary amount of sugar that's in your bloodstream. If it's high for a few minutes, that's not an issue. The issue is the average blood sugar. And uh, scientists have known this for some time. And for a long time, we've had a way of measuring this average. You understand, to get the true average, you'd have to take your blood sugar every 10 seconds to get the true average. You'd get a rough average if you took it every hour. You understand what I'm saying? Because it fluctuates. And scientists have known for some time that there's a, there's a, there's a way to determine what the average sugar is. And in fact... The average person with diabetes doesn't know. They, they, and they, so they have an appointment next Tuesday to see their physician. And so along about tomorrow, they straighten up their act. And uh, they go in and see their doctor, feeling rather smug. And the doctor measures a quantity that tells him or her how they've been doing for about three months. Not fooling the physician at all. I'm going to tell you about that substance because it has some interesting facets. 
It's what we call hemoglobin A1C. How many know the term? About eight or ten hands. Let me tell you what's behind this. Very interesting stuff. This is a drawing by an artist. You perhaps can see the red blood cell, several of them. And he's tried to illustrate that he's taking an almost an infinitesimally small point and making a big drawing of it. Does that make sense? You all with me on this? And so hemoglobin uh, is... There's four globin molecules. I don't know why they colored them differently. And there's two heme molecules of protein. And so hemoglobin does one thing. Hemoglobin picks up oxygen from the lungs and goes and lets it go somewhere. Now, there's lots of substances that can grab oxygen. And the problem is they won't let go of it. Carbon monoxide. The reason it's toxic is because it grabs the oxygen and won't let go of it. So the Lord designed this elegant molecule that picks up the oxygen and with the, with the, with the slightest sense that it's needed somewhere, let's go of it. That's, that's hemoglobin. And red blood cells uh, are stripped of their nuclei. They're stripped of most of the internal structure that normal cells have. And they're just full of hemoglobin. And so they only last in the body about three months. They just wear out. If you were see the ordinary cell is constantly rebuilding itself, right? And in keeping itself healthy, red blood cells can't do that. Now, uh, there's one more thing about this. I'm going to redraw this. There's the there's the I'm going to draw it again after this picture. There's the four uh, globin molecules and then the hemes inside. There's one more thing um, that's that's the artist didn't show was there in order to make hemoglobin work. It's a big fancy chemical. Uh, a fancy name, I should say, but it's shaped like sugar. It just happens to be shaped like sugar. That's what the G is, like gly, gly, you know, gly, a word we use for sugar. Anyway, uh, this stuff also has to be present besides the molecules of protein for hemoglobin to do its work. Y'all with me? Interestingly enough, when hemoglobin is being assembled, this stuff is built. There are factories in the cells that make proteins and they assemble these proteins into hemoglobin. While this is happening, occasionally, by accident, instead of the DPG, a sugar ends up there. What is your guess? Would this hemoglobin work now to pick up oxygen and let it go? It's not going to work anymore. And that's not the point. The point that it doesn't work is not the issue. The point I want you to notice is this, and let me get to it by asking you another question. Would it make sense to you that as this stuff is being assembled in the body and accidentally, once in a while, sugar gets there instead of DPG? Y'all still with me? How many have I lost? Let me see your hands. Who should have raised their hand and didn't? This little gadget has a battery in it, right? And if I slid the lid off and took the battery out, would it work anymore? No. Mm-mm. And if there were battery thieves around, while these things were being built at the factory, some more of them would end up without batteries than normal. Is that right? So the amount, watch this, the amount of hemoglobin that ends up with sugar in it instead of DPG 
is affected by how much sugar just happens to be floating around. Does that make sense? The guys in the factory are grabbing DPG and once in a while they accidentally grab sugar. Huh? So, the re, and, and because once the hemoglobin is assembled in the, and it's in that red blood cell, that red blood, that red blood cell is around for about three months. So, if this all connects for you, the amount of hemoglobin that has sugar on it is, is a measure of how much sugar has been around for about three months on average. Does that make sense? All right. So hemoglobin A1C is now, as of only about a year and a half ago, the new standard for determining diabetes. A momentary high sugar, a high sugar for an hour could have been from some stress. That's why the doctor has you come back to the clinic a week later to check your blood sugar again and not just tell you you have diabetes because he saw a blood sugar that was above 125. Y'all with me? But not the hemoglobin A1C. It tells you what's been going on average for about three months, two to three months. You get the idea. So, yes. Well... Yes, I'm sorry. The question was, what about inflammation? The, you know, there's another substance we use for that. and Well, there's several things that we use for that. But you've all heard about C-reactive protein. And we used to think that C-reactive protein caused inflammation. And now we realize that probably inflammation causes C-reactive protein. So these things are, it, it's not easy to say this one thing just tells you the answer for that in terms of inflammation. But uh, the issue with hemoglobin A1C is that it tells us what the average sugar has been for two or three months. Now, um, oh, this is just repeating what I've said, so I, I'm going to not take time to read this. Let me show you something very interesting here. This is an actual graph of damage to the retina as blood sugar increases. You all know that diabetes causes damage to eyes. Retina is the issue, and it's a function of how much sugar on average is present in the blood. And um, now, instead of measuring blood sugar, guess what these numbers are? This is A1C. And just so you, hopefully this all makes sense. Uh, A1C, the number uh, that the doctor finds in your bloodstream, watch this point, is the percentage of all the hemoglobin that has sugar in it. Y'all with me on the idea? So the, when the number says five there above the B, it means that 5% of the hemoglobin has got the sugar instead of the DPG. You still with me? Now, what we know is that as long as the A1C is around 5 or less, very little damage is taking place to, to, the hemoglo- to the retina or other tissues in the body. This just happens to be for the retina. You all understand? But a curve similar to this is true for almost any tissue in the body, see? But once the hemoglobin, A1C, gets higher than that, we realize that people are having damage to the tissue. So, and by the way, what do you think of this curve? It's going crazy at about 6 and 7 and 8, isn't it? Listen, lots of diabetics come in with A1Cs of 11, 12, 13, 15. It's bad news for the body. The A1C is not causing the damage, you understand? It's, it's measuring the average sugar and it's the average sugar via a picture I'll show you in a minute that's causing the damage. Now, here's the interesting thing. We know now 
that by the time somebody has an A1C of 5.8, they do have atherosclerosis growing in their coronary arteries. In fact, physicians have been told now for eight or nine years, if you, ha- if you diagnose somebody with di- diabetes, you need to know that they already have heart disease. Bad news. No, at 5.8, we know they already have heart disease. Yeah. Now, you've been living the style, lifestyle that you're promoting for a long time. What what is your number? Ah, I wish you wouldn't have asked. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? You know what? Neva's cookbooks... This is only two-thirds the way through the book, and you're already in the dessert section. One-third of this book is desserts. Woo! Why is that? Her husband loves loves desserts. So I'm going to finish answering your question in a second. The definition for diabetes today is an A1C of 6.5. And the other day, the other week, I was giving a lecture to some physicians about this whole topic. And one of them raised his hand and he said, my lab is showing a diagnosis of diabetes at 6.0. I had never heard that before. This was several months ago. And um, I said, very interesting in view of the fact that the accepted number is 6.5. About several weeks ago, I was in, my, in Idaho doing a lecture. There was a physician there that when I told this story, he says, my lab does the same thing. I'm not sure what's going on because if you read the literature, it's still 6.5. But what's really going on is this. Physicians um, and, and the labs realize people are very sick, very sick even at 6. Nevertheless, um, here's something else, folks. This is very interesting. I don't think you've probably heard this. This has only recently been published in the literature. We can give people enough medication in many cases, not every case, but if we give them enough medication, we can get the A1C down to six. There's variations, different people, different circumstances, but that in general is true. Studies have recently shown that people are dying of more heart attacks with diabetes at six than they are at seven. So all physicians are instructed today, don't try to get the A1C below seven. Did you follow that? Very interesting. Now, seven is bad news, right? But the medicine that makes it lower is worser news. Incredible. Yeah, well... We don't really know the mechanism, but there's been several institutes that have shown this. And so the word is out. Don't try to get it below seven. You're you're doing your patients more harm than good to try to get it down below seven, even though it's causing a lot of harm because of the damage to tissues all over the body. Now, the other year, about a year ago, a little more than that, I was in Maryland with uh, three physician friends. We were holding a reversing diabetes seminar. And for the first time in my life, and I don't think the other guys even had heard of it yet either, one of these docs showed up with a handheld, a handheld A1C detector. 
well, it's more complicated. It takes about five minutes. You stick it. You put two different things to insert, and five minutes later, it reads the A1C number. Up till then, it always had to be to the lab. So Dr. Fritz is checking all the participants. And after he got done checking all the participants, he started checking the staff. So I'm thinking to myself, I don't want anybody to know. So I'm over here kind of busy. (laughs) And uh, my friend Jim McCann, a physician, he and I have worked together for 50 years, believe it or not. He had the lowest of any of the staff at 5.2. Jim has been a runner for... 40 years, um, big, tall guy. He hasn't run lately because he's, he's 78, I think he is. So he's kind of slowing down some. But uh, so everybody's done. And I don't know why he noticed this, but he said he noticed I was busy in the corner. <laughs> so he says, check Jim's. His will be lower than mine. Yeah. Uh, Jim and I know each other very well. And I think the reason he said that is that he he realizes that Neve and I are more careful than perhaps he and his wife are. So I was stuck. I mean, I was stuck and then I got stuck. And uh, this is what my A1C turned out to be, if you can see it on the screen. What do you think of that? Isn't that amazing? I'm telling this story, folks, because I want you to understand that you can have wonderfully tasting food and even lots of desserts if they're properly made. Now, that's an anecdote. That's not a study. If you took a thousand people and you put them on one diet and on another diet, you could say something more definitive. But it's probably because of our, my, our careful lifestyle that my A1C is as low as it is, see? Oh, of course. In fact, activity, she said you exercise some too. Uh, Activity is probably as or more important than the diet. And as Adventists, we tend to think diet, diet, diet. And uh, we should be active, active, active. And a lot of Adventists, and I say this kindly, have way too many pounds. And if we were active, do you know what studies, I see three hands. Studies have shown four hands. Studies have shown that if young people would just be active, forget their miserable lifestyle, if they would just be active, they would not be overweight. And it's a pandemic today among kids. You must know this. It is unbelievable. I didn't get the order of the hands. I'm going to start back here. Oh, what's a baseline for someone who isn't sick for activity? If I can rephrase your question, probably three miles a day. Three miles of walking or it's equivalent. You must understand, folks, anything works. Is that correct? You look in a chart. It's on the web and you can find it all. over. What would be equivalent to that? If you want to row a canoe, it's all right. It doesn't matter. You just use your muscles with one exception. Walking or this kind of activity is satisfactory. And I'm running out of time this week to do a lot of things. But the, the one exception is osteoporosis. We have to have strenuous activity to keep our bones strong. And Ellen White has talked about this. She says that you cannot have perfect health without a couple of hours of strenuous activity, you're number five, outside every day. Outside, she said, every day. Are you all with me on this? 
Very interesting stuff, folks. I'm telling you, it's tragic what's happening to the spirit of prophecy today. I don't know if you know this, folks. It is being sidetracked in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It is being totally sidetracked. Yeah, I listened to T. Colin Campbell lecture just a few weeks ago. Uh, it was a fabulous three-hour lecture. He's the, he's the author of the China study. He gets up there in front of that 300 people and says, you know, Ellen White, ev- virtually everything she ever wrote about health has been shown in the scientific laboratory to be valid today. And we are sidetracking her, folks. And we sidetrack her on theology sometimes. And so we also throw out, I say we, we also throw out her information on health. Now, I'm going to try to get this order correct. Were you one of those five hands? Okay, you're going to go next. You're going to be number seven. So do you have one of those things for testing here? No, I don't. I don't. But you can go to the physician and, and get it done. It's, it's pretty simple. There was another hand up here. Was it, was it you? Yes, I decided not to share. Okay, and this lady. Oh, uh, what we want to say is it should be five and a half or less because at 5.8 we see heart disease increasing. And uh, even as it edges up there, changing the lifestyle would be an an indicated thing, wouldn't it, to try to get it easing back down. Well, the point is that this is the... uh, hemoglobin A1C scale and its corresponding average sugar. So you can see, by the way, that if 125 sugar was and above was diabetes, you can see why they're saying, I kind of think we ought to say 6.0. The problem is this. Those two scales are not completely agreed on by all different groups. So there's some sliding back and forth a little. Uh, yes. I'm disturbed by what you said. <laughs> Got to be outside. I work out three times in the health club, about an hour and a half, three times a week. Is that all for nothing? Okay, it's a good point. Thank you for raising that. He says, look, I'm in a health club three times a week working hard. It's certainly valuable. Ellen White said it should be outside if possible. And we do have science for that, by the way. We know that when I exercise outside in fresh air in the sunlight, the increase, just one thing, this is just one issue, the increase in muscle strength and mass is 10% greater than if I exercise inside of a building. Very interesting. But it's certainly, listen, it's certainly better than nothing. By far better than nothing. But... uh, the issue with osteo I have a whole lecture, an hour and a half lecture on osteoporosis. I'll just say, folks, walking and various uses of muscles are not enough. You've got to bear weight. And if you're a white woman who is a vegetarian, you're at risk for osteoporosis. Thin, I should say. I don't know why I said vegetarian. A white, thin woman, you're at risk for osteoporosis. And you need to wear and the, and, and all the bones. But especially the, the long bones are less likely to fracture than the, than the bones near the ends, which is a whole other topic. But um, the point I just want to make real quickly is that, um, and, and just take this home with you, the time to prevent osteoporosis is from puberty to 25 years of age. During those years of age, you can make lots and lots of bone. And it's hard to make lots of bone later. If you wear a weight vest and, and uh, eat wisely, uh, see, high protein, folks, causes bones to get thin. We, we are just crazy in this country, the way we live and the way we tell people they ought to have high protein diets. But nevertheless, and so here's a young person from the time they reach puberty to the time they're about 25 years of age. They can put they can with the way we say it is they can lay down a lot of bone 
And that's the way to prevent osteoporosis. Taking care of it after you're a lady. See, 80% of osteoporosis in this country is in females. But we don't usually find out about it until we're older. It's not that you find out about it when you're older. What I'm trying to tell you folks is what caused it is what you did when you were younger. And I know that, but you guys are too old. But you've got kids and you've got grandkids, right? Listen, I told my grand, I was like, I was given a lecture in my daughter's house just several weeks ago. And my daughter called me a few days later. She said, Leanne has bought a weight vest. She's wearing it all day long. The message got through a weight vest. You buy, it looks like a coat and there's, you put weights all around it. See, it's stressing your bones that causes them to, to become stronger. It's a wonderful topic to study together, but I, we got to get away from that. And, uh, I guess that's enough. I'm sure. Yeah, some other questions. Uh, okay, over here. When you say uh, the, the exercise the equivalent of three or four miles a day, um, should you have your heart rate elevated during that time? She's asking about elevating the heart rate, and I don't know if you heard this a few minutes ago. Tufts University have showed it's not necessary. It's not necessary. No. For. Almost any kind of a normal, any kind of conditions that we struggle with as human beings, you do not need to have elevated heart rate for, for um, uh, not getting that condition. There is a small benefit for the heart. Um, but just remember this, folks. Most of you are going to have a tough time enjoying elevating your heart rate. Is that correct? And uh, if you will use a plant-based diet... Your heart will be safe even if it has some plaque now. Is that correct? Your plaque will become safe. You can't, you will, you will not get much reversal in the plaque unless you eliminate for, let's say, six to 12 months, the four categories. You shouldn't, you know what I'm talking about? The four fat categories of plants, all these avocados, nuts, and seeds. You shouldn't, you shouldn't eliminate those for the long term. But for six or 12 months to get the, to get some reversal in the amount of plaque, it's uh, it's considered clinically safe. Oh, why is exercising outdoors more beneficial? We don't know the mechanism is the way we like to say it in science. We do know that part of it is sunlight. I haven't seen any studies that showed that the pure air is different. But Ellen White says the pure air is a difference. So someday some scientist is going to publish an article that showed that pure air was better. Just a minute. You had another question. Anybody that had raised a hand that hadn't asked a question before? Okay, go ahead. Mine was about osteoporosis. Does this diet Oh, yes. See, uh, what are the causes of osteoporosis? Two main issues, high protein and low stress on the bones. Because I have osteoporosis. Yeah. So does Mrs. Brackett. And, oh, no, I don't have this time, but here we go. Listen to this, folks. Listen to this. You all know about the Women's Health Initiative? 140,000 women that were followed for a number of years. And the reason HRT was stopped, what was it, in 04, almost overnight, is because they stopped the study. They said, hey, these women are getting more breast cancer. Their heart disease is not better. We always thought that taking estrogen would make less heart disease. The study showed it was not doing that. And, and more cancer in a couple of other sites, but especially breast cancer. And so overnight in this country and in many other Western countries, HR tree just dropped dramatically. And you should see the curves and the decrease in breast cancer because of that precipitous drop in the use of HRT. Very, very interesting stuff. But let's see, what was the question? Oh, osteoporosis. So um, the issue is um, not exactly what was your question. 
Oh yes, okay. So, so see, you're, you're, the, the two things that are the problem, we don't have enough bones to start with because when, when is it during your lifetime that you live like nothing mattered? When you could lay down a lot of bone if you would work hard. You know what's happening in this country. Kids don't know how to work anymore. It's just, it's just the stupidest thing that ever happened. You know, I was raised by German parents. I was so mad. Oh, uh, they made me work on Christmas Day. You know what? I'm thanking them today. <laughs> right, let me finish this though. So the high protein diet is the problem. Not enough bone when they were young and, and uh, not enough activity now. See, your bones are constantly, here I go, your bones are constantly being dissolved away and built back up. And when you stress them, the builder backer uppers called osteoblasts build more bone. It's just as simple as that. Stressing your, oh, here's what I'm going to find today. Don't, let, me, let me finish this. Um, yeah. I lost the thought. It was a really good thought, too. Before I come to that, it reminded me of the question, and I'll come to that. The thought I had. Here's the issue. In the Women's Health Initiative, there was a subgroup of women that they were giving uh, 1,500 milligrams of calcium and 1,200 international units of vitamin D. These women had less fractures but the bone mineral density was not greater. Follow me carefully now. Bone mineral density is what DEXA measures. You know what DEXA is. The special x-ray, two x-rays. One x-ray looks at one thing. The other x-ray measures soft tissue and they subtract the soft tissue so they can just see the bone, the amount of bone that's there. These women, watch this, they had fewer fractures, but they had no increased bone density. Which, which illustrates something that actually there, many physicians, many scientists are aware of this. Bone, folks, is living tissue. It's not just a crystalline structure. And bone can be resilient from... Bone can be uh, more brittle or less brittle, irrespective of bone density. Are you listening to me? Did you follow what I tried to describe there? So these women did not have greater density, but their bones were less liable to break. And we know that people who are living a healthy lifestyle have bones that are more flexible. So it's not just this matter. Now, the bisphosphonates is a class of drugs among which Fosamax was the first. We know that for about two years... There is more bone density and a small amount of less fractures. Not very many, but a small amount of less. After that, the fractures start increasing. And we have what we call atypical fractures. People are walking down the street and they're not even stressing themselves. And their femur breaks. It's so bad that, it, that uh, the, I think this is the case uh, anybody I've ever spoken to says yes. Uh, orthodontists will not work on a, on a jaw if the female, it's usually females, are taking bisphosphonates. They say the bone is necrotic. The, the reason you can move a tooth is you push on the tooth and the osteoclasts remove bone and the osteoblasts build bone behind it. You could move a tooth from here, clover to here, if you wanted to. Did you know that? And so the, 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 God, the way God made bones uh, structured and the way they reform themselves 
And, the, and because, because the osteoclasts are messed up with the bisphosphonates and who knows what else, they won't even, they won't even work on a person. So the docs I work with, they don't want people to take bisphosphonates at all. They say, just get some strenuous exercise and wear a weight vest. And we have evidence that we can increase bone density. And it's not just bone density, folks. It's the, it's the health of the living tissue, which is the bone. Y'all with me on that? So there's a lot of reasons, folks. Everywhere you turn, it keeps screaming at us, use plants unrefined. Sweetheart, you're on. Yeah, I heard someone saying, work in the garden. Did you mention that? That kind of uh, activity is, is good, you know, bone uh, <laughs> or weight-bearing exercise. And, uh, and besides that, it's enjoyable. You know, don't you get tired of just a, a treadmill or, or even lifting weights or one of those, whatever? I mean, I can do something like that for... Or even a rebounder, you know, you five minutes of that and you're bored, you know, <laughs> maybe. But um, I, I can work out in the garden and uh, for hours because you're you're stimulated with the uh, what you're trying to get accomplished. And then when it's all done, I mean, just for weeks you're enjoying what you did. And so the Lord gave us the best plan, didn't He? I'm going to show you another one of those key recipes that I think is really... No, you have them. I I handed them to you. Those are not the ones. I think they're over here. Yeah, you you said, where's the handouts? And I gave them to you. No, I gave them to you. Oh, you're right. This is them right here. (laughs) He was right. Now, they're just 40 copies, and I notice there's like about 50 people here, but yeah. So I think there'll be enough if we... Pardon? Do we need to turn this mic up a little, or do I need to put it... Oh, okay, I'm not... Do I have it on backwards? feels like it's not... Isn't it supposed to go toward my mouth instead of away from it? Okay, this is more toward my mouth. I think no, it still it still goes away. <laughs> it bends a little bit that way. Seems like it should come around toward your mouth instead of bending away. <laughs> okay, so anyway, I chose this recipe because um, it is is so useful in so many ways. I mean. And and we as Adventists especially, we like to uh, use the prepared meat analog or meat substitutes. And this is one that you can make yourself. And there's many advantages to this. It's much more, 
think it's much better for you. There's not so many things that they add to it that are refined. And also, it's cheaper, way, way cheaper. And you can make one recipe of this and keep it in your freezer. And whenever you want to make a, I'm going to show you stroganoff, um, that you might use some little pieces of gluten in to take the place of steak or meat, you know, most people would use for a stroganoff. Or if you want to make a um, pot pie with a few little pieces of this in it, uh, you know, there's just a, all kinds of things that you can think of to put a few little chunky pieces of meat-like things in it. And you already have this already made in your freezer. It's also nice little slices to put in a sandwich. And this is the recipe I just handed out to you. It's a variation of the one uh, on page 37 called veggie cutlets. And that recipe, I'll just tell you how, how it's made. Um, and if you want to even follow the recipe that you have in your handout, it's very similar. The recipe in the book called Veggie Cutlets uses two cups of soaked soybeans or garbanzo beans. Or you could use a can, you know, just the regular 15-ounce uh, can of garbanzo beans. And you drain off the water. I actually drain it off into a measuring cup, the juice, and then um, add more water to that to make one and a half cups of liquid. Pour that into my blender, then add the drained garbanzo beans or the soaked garbanzos, raw, soaked, uh, or soybeans. Or in the case of the recipe that you have in your handout, this is the beef-like slices. The one in the cookbook is more of a lighter color, sort of a turkey slice maybe. This is a darker color, uh, beef-like slice. And so I use kidney beans for that one. And then the other little thing that I add to it is some walnuts. What is it, one a half cup or three? One cup of walnuts. And uh, that just gives it more fat and makes it a little more meaty, I think. Nice flavor. So you blend that with the yeast flakes, onion powder, garlic powder, and um, some beef-like seasoning. Or Sweetheart, I just handed out the list of things that says where the recipes are to be found. On the back. So anyway, you blend all those seasonings and the uh, beans and everything. And then one of the seasonings is this. It's kitchen bouquet browning and seasoning sauce. Maybe some of you have seen this. It's in the grocery store where they have A1 sauces and all those things. That just gives it a little darker color. Sometimes I don't happen to have this, and I, it, it's still okay. It's just a little lighter, but um, I kind of like that look. So they blend that all together, pour it into a big bowl, and then add gluten flour. Vital gluten is another name for it. If you ever find a Winco, in, like in Reno, the Winco store or around here, um, they have it in their bulk food section. I think that ABC sells it. It's uh, one of those refined products <laughs> that we don't use a whole lot of, but it is the wheat that has, just the gluten has been refined out of the wheat. And so um, you just mix that in, knead it like bread for about uh, five minutes. Just keep kneading it, you know, with your hands and work it until it gets nice and elastic. Like a loaf of bread, it gets way more elastic than a loaf of bread because it's just gluten. 
and then I cut it in half and form each half into a, into a roll. No, I'm not going to because we're running out of time. And then put it on a cookie sheet and bake it for one hour. And if you're tempted to take it out sooner like I have been, it starts to get pretty nice looking about half an hour. But then it's not cooked through in the middle. And I cooked this here in the convection oven, and it was faster with that fan. And I looked at it, and it was burning along with these things. And I thought, oh, I took it out. But it didn't cook in the center as good as it should have. It's a little bit gummy in the middle. So I'm sorry. It'll be okay in the stroganoff. Your sample might be a little gummy and it won't be quite as nice but uh, so just keep that in mind do bake it for the whole hour and then um, then I just you know let it cool slice it real thin an electric knife works really good for slicing that real thin but uh, I used this serrated knife here and um, then uh, I like to put them in a little broth and just uh, steam it for a few minutes and it will get even more moist and nice and then it will look like the picture in the cookbook there, veggie cutlets. We serve it there with the bread dressing. It's almost like a little turkey slice. It's a nice thing to serve at Thanksgiving. Um, but I'm just going to give it to you plain so you can taste it that way. It's nice that way in a sandwich or, you know, I... Um, You'll just have to play with it. It's, it's just a really nice little thing to have on hand. But I'm going to make it into stroganoff here. Ah, this lid. Huh. <laughs> My hand isn't quite big enough to grab onto that. Okay, before I... Um, before I... Blend the blended part... I like to start with the um, fried part of this recipe. And that's on page 29, if you have a cookbook. Creamy stroganoff. And this is one that I find most guests really love this. It has just a real meaty flavor. And people are kind of used to stroganoff who are not vegetarian, maybe, and it's Nice either over pasta or over rice. And by the way, now you can get such good whole grain pastas. Uh, used to be they were kind of poor, you know. We didn't like them very well, but they, they really improved them. I don't know what they did, but they hang together better, and, and, and they're quite good. So I will, let's see, I need some water. Just give me some water. Fill it about it. Two cups, maybe. Yeah, he was saying, what about the rice pasta compared to the gluten pasta? I used to never like those rice pastas. They would just go to mush, you know. But now they, they're they very nice, uh, especially um, Tink Yada makes one. That a brown rice pasta, thank you, that is the so good. It's going to taste like a hose. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> I'll mask that with some nice flavors here. So, anyway, yeah, I think the brown rice pasta now is a really good one. 
Oh, yes. Well, I don't know if it's more healthy than, um, you know, a, a whole wheat pasta, but, of course, especially if you're gluten intolerant and, and you're getting, you know, a grain that maybe we don't use as much. Yes, Trader Joe's has a real good brown rice pasta. They have a um, spaghetti, and I think they even have a, and I think I've seen it at Winco in their bulk food, a uh, um, macaroni-type pasta. I'm going to cut this. I've already sliced the gluten, and I'm going to cut it into strips now. About like that. <laughs> okay, this water is starting to um, simmer a little bit. Well, I need the um, soy sauce. It's in a um, jar in the suitcase. Right. Yeah. I'll put the onion in here with the water so it can begin to simmer. And I want to flavor that a little bit. This has some, I think this is some chicken seasoning. I can't remember. Or beef seasoning. So I'll give that a little flavor with the beef seasoning. And I think I'll let that onion simmer just a little while. And then I'll add the, I have some red pepper here. Sliced red pepper. Yes, thank you. And even a little green onion. And we have some mushrooms. I'll put those in with the um, onions. Now, if I had my lid, I might put it down, but I don't, so... (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I haven't given up mushrooms yet. <laughs> I, I'm sure we could live just fine without them. And, uh, but yet there's so many other things that we're telling ourselves that are way worse that we shouldn't eat. And mushrooms do grow naturally, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'll put just a little bit of this, uh, either Bragg aminos or soy sauce you can put in this recipe. That would substitute for beef extract or something like that? Yeah. Bragg's aminos or soy sauce. You know, that would be a good idea. You know what? I've got one. Never mind. I got a flat one. I can go get This is good enough. Thank you. I just grabbed what was right there. <laughs> All right, so now while we're letting that simmer, I'll blend the cream part of this. And that is um, uh, one cup of water. I'm sorry, now I need my container because I have, you know what, this will work. I need one cup of water. I mean, I have it, but I just want one cup in here. Thank you. 
and three-fourths cups of cashew nuts. Place the cashews and tofu in the blender with one cup of water and blend until smooth. So we'll put tofu in this now. And this takes the place of sour cream, you know, regular stroganoff that you've made in the past maybe has some sour cream in it. It makes it real creamy. Uh-oh. I blew a breaker. What do we do about that? <laughs> I should turn this off while I'm blending, I guess. Oh, so maybe it's something in the thing. Now, again, we got to test this and make sure we didn't make sure the cashews are not gritty. That feels good. A uh, Vitamix is such a good blender. It blends faster. But if you have the ordinary blender, um, just blend it longer. I can, you can do everything with a regular blender almost that you can do with this Vitamix. It just takes longer, maybe smaller amounts uh, at a time. Yeah, <laughs> I might burn out a motor, she said. Okay, now I'll turn this back on. Do you cook with the lid on that? On this? Yes. I would ordinarily. I think it would go a little faster, but I didn't bring my lid. I brought this in my suitcase on the airplane, and I said that glass lid wasn't a good idea. <laughs> I could live without it. So while this is finishes simmering, then I'm going to add the onions and the red pepper, and the, um, then I'll just add this blended mix to it. This, this needs a little more water, and then, um, then it'll be ready to serve. So while that's happening, I'm going to talk to you for a minute, and can we show the tofu walnut ball recipe? Yes. And while he's getting that, I also want to just, you know, in case you're thinking, and I know, you know, most of us understand this, I think, that um, you don't really have to make this, uh, these kind of things in order to eat the kind of diet that the Lord would have us to really get back to. We're trying to get it back as close to the Garden of Eden as possible, Right. But these are things that help us to make that transition. Uh, but if you want to just do the simple thing, rice, beans, uh, you know, 
the simple meals that, in fact, that's what we do most of the time. I mean, a, a stroganoff or these tofu walnut balls that we're going to show you. These are just little special things to, to make our meals more interesting. But in order to be healthy, you don't really have to put these mixtures together and spend all that time. And uh, But these uh, walnut balls are great because you can keep these in the freezer. This is another one you can keep in the freezer. Just add that little extra touch to so many of our uh, foods. On page 29 in Best Gourmet. Pardon? Um, the tofu walnut balls maybe take about 30 minutes to, to put together, another 30 minutes to bake. Yes, the five loaves. Well, yeah, the seven secrets <laughs> is a step beyond five loaves, I guess you might say. But um, some recipes are the same, but mostly new recipes. So, um, well, just let me uh, say one thing about, because I didn't quite get time with this yesterday, because we showed you the cream sauce and the cheese, and I didn't show you the cheese sauce, which is just about the same idea as that cream sauce I showed you with you blend one cup of cashew nuts, two cups of water. Uh, the cream sauce is the same way. One cup of cashew nuts, two cups of water. You add more water than to the cream sauce. Or the one I showed you, I replaced some of the water with coconut milk to give that flavor. But um, for the cheese sauce, one cup of cashew nuts, two cups of water, and then you put some red pepper and some, uh, or pimento. If I don't have either of those, I'll even just add a tablespoon of paprika to it to give it that orange color of cheese and some yeast flakes. And then there's so many things you can make with that. Pizza, lasagna, enchiladas. Um, use it as a dip for those chips. Uh, and you can freeze it. Um, so I often make a batch of cheese sauce, maybe even a double batch, and freeze several little one-cup containers of it. So I can take that out, put it on a pizza crust, or, or uh, make an enchilada, you know, something with it, simple and quick. And, uh, you know, some of these things take time, and you look at the recipe and you think, oh, dear, I don't have time for that. <laughs> but if you've done your work ahead of time and you, you get into this, pretty soon it becomes a way of life. It becomes simple really isn't that difficult. So don't give up. Keep, <laughs> keep trying. And while he plays that tofu walnut ball video, I'll finish this recipe and we'll dish up some samples. My recipes is a replacement for meatballs, I guess we would say. We call them tofu walnut balls. We used to make these all the time in the restaurant. It seemed like by the hundreds. <laughs> we surely did. We made them by the thousands, I think. I think so. We even had people special order them, and we would just uh, find that this was a great job to give somebody who was inexperienced, who just wanted to come and help. Yeah. I'd give them a big batch of mix and soup, and they would just make <laughs> and three hundred And 300 tofu balls later. <laughs> well, show us how to do it, dear. All right. We have the recipe here calls for... Breadcrumbs, walnuts, onions, and tofu that we have to blend. And the first thing that I'm going to do is mix up some breadcrumbs from my 
old bread that I keep in my freezer in little batches, this and that, and I make this into breadcrumbs. And this is just bread that's soft. It's not dried bread that you would uh, dry out in the like Zweibel. Can you make it louder? Because it, it really blends a lot nicer in a food processor or a blender. You could do this in either, but the food processor just seems to be a little simpler. You just break it up in pieces and then... That's all it takes. That's all. And I'm going to measure here because I need four cups. Very nice. And I'll put that in the bowl. Now I'm going to blend the nuts. I have here, actually it's two cups of walnuts, pieces, kind of big. The rest of the is for one and a half cups of nuts, finely chopped. And the food processor really does a good job of finely chopping nuts. And it will be about one and a half cups by the time this gets finely chopped. It doesn't take very long to do that. And as you can see, it's, it's quite powdery. You don't want big pieces to, if you want it to be like a meatball, you don't want to know that there's nuts in there. But the nuts do give it a nice flavor and give it that fat that we like in the meatball. Now I'm going to chop up the onions in here. So I'm really making use of the that's a That's a labor-saving <laughs> device, isn't it? There is. Now, of course, you can do this without a food processor. There are old-fashioned ways of chopping, but this really makes it quick. So here I've taken an onion and cut it into pieces. I'll just put it in there and give it a couple of quick... If you want to chop an onion without bake it into mush or puree in a food processor, you have to pulse have it. To pulse it. There we go. I'm going to put that in the bowl. Can you push that back, please? Turn it sideways. Do you remember? So we have onions, breadcrumbs, and walnuts in there now. So I will add to that the seasonings. And here I have some um, McKay's chicken seasoning, garlic, onion, well, whatever is in the cookbook. You can look at the recipe. I just measured it out ahead, and you just put all of that in there with the dry ingredients. And now I'm going to blend together the tofu and water and Bragg's aminos. I've got two bricks of tofu here. The recipe calls for two 16-ounce bricks. So actually these bricks are light, slightly larger than that. So I've cut some of it off and I'll put about 16 ounces. And as it says, if you have a small blender, you might have to do this in two batches because this really is a large recipe. Like we said, we make these by the thousands, and so somehow that recipe did end up quite big in the cookbook. And if you are making this for the first time, you really ought to make a half recipe because this makes about 40 balls. Maybe even a little practice on a smaller recipe would be advised. Right. Huh?
Well, we had that on high when you started it. I'm sorry, yeah. but uh, normally you started out on a low speed. But it blended up. Thankfully, I had the lid on it. Yes. Stir together the breadcrumbs and the onions and the seasoning. Get them all nicely mixed together. And now for this. Neva would take longer to make sure the blender got every drop out of it than we might here while we're, while tape tape is rolling. In case some of you are like uh, my mother, and well, we are too. The Bible says, uh, "Gather up the fragments." So that's all there is to it. It's all mixed. Now it's quite a wet mix, as you can see. But it's really the way you like it for this recipe because it will be more moist that way. The balls, if they're, if the mix is real dry, they will be kind of mealy, mealy, yeah, a little, a little more dense even. So now it's ready to make into balls. And of course, the way I used to make meatballs like this, or I should say, vegetarian meatballs, you made uh, shredded cheese and breadcrumbs and nuts and I can't remember what all eggs. And it made kind of a thick mix that you would form the balls with your hands. And, of course, that's the way you would make meatballs. But this recipe is a little different. And you can't do this with your hands because it is quite wet. You'd really have to have a scoop. Or you could put mounds on the cookie sheet with a spoon. But the scoop really does help. And you just... Now, this is still even more moist as it sits it swells up and becomes a little more firm now what we'll do is uh, let's tell them how to bake this and we'll show it to them when it's done okay dear all right we're just going to put this in the oven after we get this tray all filled up with these you don't even have to place them far apart because they don't swell this ones they were more runny than usual and i thought well it's just because my tofu maybe is is more is, is not as firm as some that I usually use. I just used a regular tofu. Sometimes I use a firm tofu. Anyway, this is how they should look. They hold their shape better when you add the oatmeal. And it's crazy how many times I leave that oatmeal out. And we'll put that in the oven at 350 degrees for about 30 minutes. Okay. Lightly golden brown. So I can have these whenever I want them. I don't have to go to all the trouble to make them every time I want them. In preparation for making lasagna, one of the things you need is what we call... Just a word uh, before she's finished here. Um... If any of you are interested, oh, I know what I was going to say. If you, any of you are interested or some family member wants to come up to our seminar in uh, Washington, you know, the live-in program for five days, and if it turns out that that's not quite enough for you, if you need three weeks and you want to go to Weimar, I'll arrange for you to get a discount equal to the cost of what it was at our seminar. So I still have some pull at, at, at Weimar. So. <laughs> and by the way, the, on, the, on our website, the... Um, Best Gourmet Recipes Cookbook. Some people call it the Five Loaves Book. 
is for sale as an ebook for $20. Uh, we'll sell it for 15 if you want it here. We don't have to ship it that way. It's on a CD disc so that you could uh, you see it on your computer. They start with the cheapest price and go up to the most expensive. So if you're looking for any old cookbooks or used books, bookfinder.com is the best source. You can get a new copy of the Five Loaves book for about $140 now on Amazon. <laughs> and uh, cheaper for some used copies. So That's okay. Anything else, dear? This thing you saw on the screen is out of a set of DVDs called Neva's Kitchen. It's 10 DVDs, and any recipe in five loaves, you can watch her make it in her own kitchen. That's $69. Jim, how much is the cookbook? The cookbook here is $18. That's seven secrets. Yeah. Anything else, dear? She's going to put the samples together. Thank you for some of you coming at 9. Is it okay to start at 9 again tomorrow morning? Would you all raise your hand and repeat after, repeat after, repeat after me? I promise. No, no, that's all right.